This episode covers events in the war in Afghanistan in graphic detail and with explicit language. Listener discretion is advised. Two days after 9-11, Counterterror Center Director Kofor Black joined his boss, CIA Director George Tenet, at a National Security Council meeting at the White House. On the agenda, briefing the president with options for what to do in Afghanistan. The World Trade Center was a smoldering pile of rubble. An entire side of the Pentagon looked like it had been hit by a bomb. All that remained of United 93 was a massive hole in the ground in rural Pennsylvania. Preliminary estimates for the number of deaths were as high as tens of thousands. The nation was in a collective state of shock and mourning. The Bush administration was forced to come up with a response to the attacks. That was the context to this meeting at the White House. Tenet was advocating for using the agency's paramilitary forces in conjunction with the U.S. military and local opposition forces on the ground. This would involve funding and strengthening the Northern Alliance, the main anti-Taliban force in the country, which was very fractured from within. Further complicating matters was the very recent assassination of Ahmed Shah Massoud barely four days earlier. The Massoud assassination was previously covered in Episode 7. When it was Black's turn to brief the president, he did not sugarcoat his words. This is how he is quoted in Bob Woodward's book, Bush at War. Quote, You've got to understand, people are going to die. And the worst part about it, Mr. President, Americans are going to die. My colleagues and my friends. So there should be no misunderstanding that this is going to be a bloodless activity. Once the President made clear that he was aware of the consequences and was willing to accept them, Black was hawkish about the agency's capabilities. He told the President that they would have to take Al-Qaeda and the Taliban down hand in hand and that Massoud had once told him that in four years of combat, his Northern Alliance fighters had never captured a single Al-Qaeda fighter alive. In a particularly grim rhetorical flourish, Black told the president, quote, When we're through with them, they will have flies walking across their eyeballs. I'm David DeSola. This is the ninth episode of Zero Hour, a history of 9-11. Gary Schroen was a 32-year veteran of the CIA's Directorate of Operations, having served in Tehran, Islamabad, Dubai, Kabul, and Riyadh. According to Bush at War, on 9-11, the 59-year-old Schroen was on his way out, having filed the paperwork and already in the agency's 90-day retirement transition program. On September 15th, he got a call from Kofor Black, requesting a meeting at Langley. Black acknowledged Schroen was about to retire, but asked him to stay on board because the agency wanted to send him to Afghanistan. Not only did Schroen have the relevant experience in the field and knew many of the Northern Alliance leaders, he also spoke Pashto and Dari, the two main languages used in Afghanistan. He accepted the assignment. Once he got there, Schroen would have to convince the Northern Alliance to work with the United States and to prepare the groundwork for the arrival of U.S. military forces in Afghanistan. The first objective was not expected to be difficult. The United States and the Northern Alliance had both just been attacked by the same terrorist organization. Cash would help to smooth over any deals he had to negotiate. In his memoir, Schroen wrote, quote, Money is the lubricant that makes things happen in Afghanistan. 
Schrone would lead a 10-man squad formerly called the Northern Alliance Liaison Team, known by its acronym NALT. They were given the codename Jawbreaker. On September 19th, Black called Schrone back into his office. The Jawbreaker team was to head to Europe the next day and make its way to Central Asia, ultimately into Afghanistan as quickly as possible. He also had a specific request, according to Bob Woodward. Quote, You have one mission. Go find the Al-Qaeda and kill them. We're going to eliminate them. Get Bin Laden. Find him. I want his head in a box. Two days earlier, the president had signed a document addressed to the National Security Council, modifying a finding signed by President Reagan on May 12, 1986. It authorized intelligence agencies to take covert and overt actions to capture or kill Osama bin Laden and to disrupt Al-Qaeda and other terrorist networks on a global scale. The document, known as a Memorandum of Notification, or by its initials MON, also gave the CIA's paramilitary teams, case officers, and weaponized drones free reign to operate in Afghanistan. The gloves were off. The CIA had never been in the incarceration business before, but 9-11 would force them into it. The Senate Select Committee on Intelligence Report on the CIA's interrogation program noted, quote, After considering various clandestine detention locations, the CIA determines that a U.S. military base is the best option. The CIA delegates blanket detention approvals to CIA officers in redacted. The report also noted that three days after 9-11, a CIA official sent an email to unidentified CIA stations overseas, quote, seeking input on appropriate locations for potential CIA detention facilities. The same document would conclude, quote, the MON provided unprecedented authorities, granting the CIA significant discretion in determining whom to detain, the factual basis for the detention, and the length of the detention. The issue of the capture and treatment of detainees during the war on terror in Afghanistan, Iraq, and elsewhere will be covered later in this episode. September 26, 2001. For the final leg of the trip, the 10-man jawbreaker team would be joined by two Northern Alliance personnel. They started the journey at 6 a.m. local time in Tashkent, the capital city of Uzbekistan. They flew by plane to Dushanbe, capital city of neighboring Tajikistan. From Dushanbe, they boarded a Russian helicopter flown by CIA pilots with the non-coincidental tail number of 9-11-01. They traveled southeast, flying over the Amjuman Pass at 14,500 feet, passing over the Hindu Kush Mountains, and eventually landing in Afghanistan's Panjshir Valley at 2.45 p.m. local time. Why did they take this flight route into Afghanistan? Sharon described it in his memoir as, quote, the best or at least the safest route for us to use for insertion. That way, we would be entering Afghan airspace over what was Northern Alliance-controlled territory, minimizing the risks of being fired on by Taliban anti-aircraft defenses. This is how Sharon described the final flight in his memoir, quote, even though our helicopter had been extensively reconditioned and upgraded by expert mechanics, this flight over the pass was straining the limits of the aircraft. Our load was heavy, with several thousand pounds of equipment and supplies jammed into every nook and cranny of the cargo area. 
They had brought with them a large case filled with weapons and ammunition, personal gear, extra fuel, and communications equipment so they could establish secure signals with Langley. There was also a suitcase filled with $3 million in non-sequential $100 bills. According to Bob Woodward, Schroen, quote, had signed for the $3 million as usual. What was different this time was that he could dole it out pretty much at his own discretion. He would later tell CBS News that the suitcase weighed an estimated 50 pounds. Fifteen days after 9-11, the members of Jawbreaker were the first Americans on the ground in Afghanistan. Back in the United States, the economy went into a tailspin in the aftermath of 9-11. The Dow Jones Industrial Average had already been on a steady decline beginning in January of 2000 because of the dot-com bubble. The stock market did not open on the morning of 9-11. Remember, the attacks began before the market opening at 9 a.m. It would not reopen again until September 17th. That day, the Dow Jones suffered its biggest one-day drop in history up to that point, losing 684 points, about 7.1% of its value. Still, a fictionalized version of the stock market on 9-11 has played a role in popular culture. On the TV series Billions, fictional hedge fund CEO Bobby Axelrod made his fortune by shorting airline and hotel stocks on the morning of 9-11 during the 17-minute window between the first and second planes hitting the World Trade Center. There is a partial element of truth to that fictional character. After 9-11, there were allegations that some people had engaged in insider trading by shorting airline stocks just before the attacks. The implication was that they somehow had advanced knowledge of the 9-11 plot and profited from it. Shorting of airline stocks, including American and United, did happen in the days before 9-11, but there was no evidence of any advanced knowledge of the attacks or ties to terrorism. Buried in a footnote of the 9-11 Commission report is this sentence, quote, The SEC and the FBI, aided by other agencies and the securities industry, devoted enormous resources to investigating the issue, including securing the cooperation of many foreign governments. These investigators have found that the apparently suspicious consistently proved innocuous. For those of you who are not familiar with it, the Securities and Exchange Commission is the government agency responsible for regulating the stock market and the sale of securities in the United States. But a version of this debunked myth made its way into popular culture. In the 2006 James Bond movie Casino Royale, the villain takes money from unsavory characters and invests it by shorting stocks of companies that he is going to sabotage, generating guaranteed and large profits for his clients. For listeners not familiar with the concept of shorting a stock, essentially it means an investor is betting on a particular stock to fall in market value. If the stock falls, the investor makes a profit. If it doesn't, the investor loses money. If you want to learn more about this, watch the movie The Big Short or read the book of the same title by Michael Lewis. Among the industries most heavily affected by 9-11 were aviation, which was shut down in the immediate aftermath of the attacks, and insurance companies, who were swamped with thousands of claims almost simultaneously that were potentially worth billions of dollars. According to Investopedia, the market rebounded after a relatively short sell-off. The three major indices were back to their pre-9-11 price levels within a month. 
2001 also went down in history as the first two-year decline in the stock market since 1974. Economists would later conclude that the recession began in March of 2001 and ended in November, thanks to a combination of the dot-com bubble, the 9-11 attacks, and a series of accounting scandals that shook consumer confidence in corporate America. The unemployment rate increased to 5.6% in the fourth quarter of 2001. That was a rise of 1.6% from the 30-year low of only a year earlier. 1.3 million jobs were lost in 2001. September 18, 2001. President Bush signed into law a joint resolution authorizing the use of force against the people responsible for the 9-11 attacks. Colloquially known as an Authorization for the Use of Military Force, or AUMF for short, it authorized the President to use, quote, all necessary and appropriate force against those nations, organizations, or persons he determines planned, authorized, committed, or aided the terrorist attacks that occurred on September 11, 2001, or harbored such organizations or persons. The bill passed 98 to nothing in the Senate and 420 to 1 in the House of Representatives, with Congresswoman Barbara Lee of California casting the sole dissenting vote. The AUMF would go far beyond what it was originally intended. This law would later be cited as justification for many of the more controversial aspects of the War on Terror in the weeks, months, and years ahead. Also happening on September 18th, two envelopes containing a powdery substance were mailed to NBC News anchor Tom Brokaw and the editor of the New York Post. This marks the beginning of the anthrax letters, which would shake an already jolted nation reeling from 9-11 barely a week earlier. A second batch of anthrax-laced letters went out on October 9th. They were sent to the Washington, D.C. offices of Senators Patrick Leahy and Tom Daschle. At some point, another envelope was sent to the headquarters of American Media, Inc. in Boca Raton, Florida. This is the parent company of several magazines and tabloids, including the National Enquirer. There was an anthrax outbreak at the AMI headquarters, but the envelope through which it was delivered was never found. The following information is from the FBI's summary of the investigation. Over the next several weeks, 22 people contracted anthrax as a result of these letters. 11 of them got it by inhaling the spores. The others got it by absorbing them through the skin. Of the 11 who inhaled the spores, 5 died as a result of their infections. An additional 31 people tested positive for exposure to anthrax spores, and 10,000 more were considered at risk of possible exposure and underwent antibiotic treatment. 35 postal facilities and commercial mail rooms were contaminated. Two mailing facilities in Washington, D.C. and New Jersey closed in October of 2001 and would not reopen again until December of 2003 and March of 2005. More than 1.8 million letters, packages, catalogs, magazines, and other items were quarantined at these two facilities. Anthrax was detected in seven of the 26 buildings that were tested on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. The Environmental Protection Agency would spend $27 million to pay for the cleanup. 
October 5th, 2001. 63-year-old Bob Stevens, a photo editor for the Sun Tabloid working out of American Media Inc.'s Boca Raton headquarters, is the first person to die from an anthrax-laced letter. According to the South Florida Sun Sentinel, he began feeling sick on September 30th and checked himself into a hospital 48 hours later with a 102-degree fever, vomiting, and confusion. His health deteriorated quickly over the next three days. The FBI would later note that the five fatal cases all had the same strain of anthrax. Known as Ames, this particular strain was isolated in Texas in 1981. It was then sent to the United States Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases, known by its acronym USAMRID, where the samples have been kept ever since. The FBI's summary of the investigation notes, quote, Another natural outbreak of Ames has never again been recorded. There were concerns at the time that the letters might be part of a second wave of attacks by Al-Qaeda. It should be noted that in the years leading up to 9-11, the terror organization tried to develop or acquire biological, chemical, and nuclear weapons. In early 2001, Al-Qaeda defector Jamal al-Fadl was the government's star witness in Osama bin Laden's criminal trial for the 1998 Africa embassy bombings. He defected to the United States after he was caught embezzling more than $100,000 from Al-Qaeda's coffers for his personal use. During the course of his testimony, al-Fadl admitted to being part of a failed 1994 attempt to procure uranium from South Africa for Al-Qaeda, for an agreed price of $1.5 million. There were other attempts that didn't involve al-Fadl. In May of 1996, Al-Qaeda military commander Abu Ubaidah al-Banshiri died in a ferry accident on Lake Victoria. According to Foreign Policy magazine, subsequent testimony from Al-Qaeda officials revealed that he had been seeking nuclear materials from southern Africa. In September of 1998, a bin Laden aide named Mamdou Mahmoud Salim was arrested in Munich, Germany and charged with acting on bin Laden's behalf to obtain nuclear materials. After 9-11, CNN obtained an archive of 64 videotapes filmed over the course of more than a decade. They were provided by a source who said they had allegedly been found inside an Afghan house where bin Laden himself had stayed. In addition to explosives training, the videos show what appear to be chemical weapons tests carried out on dogs. The video is consistent with an account from Omar bin Laden's memoir, in which he writes, quote, A friend soon confided that the puppies my siblings and I adored were being sacrificed for the jihadi cause. My father's soldiers were using our puppies as test subjects, gassing them to see how long it would take them to die. Shock ran the length of my body. I wept, but nothing could move my father or his men. They must have test subjects, I was told, and our puppies were ideal for that purpose. My father gave no indication of concern that I cared deeply enough to plead for the lives of my puppies. Two months after the 9-11 attacks, Osama bin Laden told Pakistani journalist Hamid Mir that Al-Qaeda had chemical or nuclear weapons as a deterrent. His top deputy, Ayman al-Zawahiri, said that the organization had obtained suitcase bombs from Russia and other former Soviet republics. Both statements were lies, but keep in mind the context. The United States and its allies had invaded Afghanistan a month before, in retaliation for the 9-11 attacks. Ultimately, the anthrax letters were not an Al-Qaeda biological weapon. 
The FBI spent years investigating the case. In 2008, the Department of Justice and the FBI were about to bring charges against Dr. Bruce Ivins, a microbiologist who worked at U.S. Amrit, who took his own life just days before they were filed. It should be noted that some people and media investigations done after Ivins' death have disputed this conclusion. The FBI formally closed the anthrax letters case in February of 2010. September 20th, 2001. President Bush addresses a special joint session of Congress. Our response involves far more than instant retaliation and isolated strikes. Americans should not expect one battle, but a lengthy campaign, unlike any other we have ever seen. It may include dramatic strikes visible on TV and covert operations secret even in success. We will starve terrorists of funding, turn them one against another, drive them from place to place until there is no refuge or no rest. And we will pursue nations that provide aid or safe haven to terrorism. Every nation in every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. From this day forward, any nation that continues to harbor or support terrorism will be regarded by the United States as a hostile regime. This is a continuation of an idea he mentioned briefly during his Oval Office address to the nation on the night of September 11th. We will make no distinction between the terrorists who committed these acts and those who harbor them. Together, these two passages would come to be known by journalists and historians as the Bush Doctrine, and would set the tone for the rest of his presidency. Here's New York Times White House correspondent Peter Baker. How does Bush Doctrine change American foreign policy? Well, I mean, first of all, of course, uh, as we discussed, I mean, one of the most important things Bush does is set out the doctrine that... um, you know, we will not just go after ter- terrorists, but we will go after those who harbor them. Uh, it, 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 he basically takes the approach of you're with us or you're against us in this war on terrorism and forces other countries to choose, and most, uh, most particularly Pakistan and Afghanistan. Um, that's a, a big shift and, and, and an important one that, uh, that, that, that continues to reverberate today. Um, the idea as well that a global war on terrorism can be waged basically almost anywhere uh, in the world is a different kind of, uh, uh, you know, national security challenge than we've ever faced before. We, we've never, you know, been in a situation where we are basically asserting the right to defend ourselves by going into countries that may or may not want us there to, to kill people on their soil that we take to be a threat to us. Sometimes with their permission, but not always. And and it's um, 
uh, that's a pretty big, stark um, uh, uh, shift, I think, as well. Uh, and then I think it's the, you know, the, the, and this is what leads us to Iraq, is this idea that no threat, no gathering threat can be left unaddressed, that it's not enough to simply contain a Saddam Hussein who had nothing to do with 9-11, but is obviously, uh, you know, seen as a dangerous figure who has in the past sought out weapons of mass destruction. Containment is no longer enough. We have to do something more assertive in, in taking them on. Uh, that leads, that's, that's the logic that leads to the invasion of 2003. Uh, obviously today it looks a whole lot different than it, uh, it did then. Uh, but it was seen in the continuum of what Bush was framing as this global, uh, uh, war on terrorism, not just on Al Qaeda, but on, on, on terrorism more broadly. Preparations for war began almost immediately after the 9-11 attacks. On September 12, 2001, NATO invoked Article 5 for the first time in the alliance's 52-year history. Article 5 is the cornerstone of the North Atlantic Treaty. It says, quote, The parties agree that an armed attack against one or more of them in Europe or North America shall be considered an attack against them all. This committed the Alliance's members to stand by the United States in response to the 9-11 attacks. October 7, 2001, nearly a month after 9-11 and 11 days after the arrival of the Jawbreaker team into Afghanistan, the Taliban did not respond to U.S. demands that they turn over Osama bin Laden. The war in Afghanistan officially begins. Good afternoon. On my orders, the United States military has begun strikes against Al-Qaeda terrorist training camps and military installations of the Taliban regime in Afghanistan. These carefully targeted actions are designed to disrupt the use of Afghanistan as a terrorist base of operations and to attack the military capability of the Taliban regime. According to John Breaker leader Gary Schroen's memoir, Initial bombings hit 31 targets across Afghanistan, but only three bombs were dropped on the Kabul area. In his words, quote, The majority of targets hit were strategic but low value, such as tank repair facilities, troop staging locations, and food and equipment storage compounds, with no frontline combat positions hit at all. The opening salvo in the war is delivered by American and British airstrikes. No one could have imagined at the time that the United States military would be in the country for the next two decades. To get a sense of the war's impact on American life, look at the U.S. government budget from the end of Bill Clinton's presidency through most of George W. Bush's second term. According to the Brookings Institution, the Clinton administration's entire national security budget hit $300 billion by the end of his presidency in January of 2001. In contrast, President Bush's budgets were $329 billion for the first year, then $351 billion in 2002, and $396 billion in 2003, with similarly projected annual growths through 2007. The man charged with running the Pentagon and the war effort in Afghanistan was Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld. Other than President Bush himself, Rumsfeld was probably the cabinet official who was the face of the war in the public consciousness, first in Afghanistan and again in Iraq later on. He was the first and to date only person to serve non-consecutive terms in that position under different presidents. He also has the distinction of being the youngest and oldest person to ever hold the job. 
Rumsfeld was only 43 years old when he was tapped for the position by President Gerald Ford in 1975, and 74 when he was called to service again by President Bush in 2001. According to the New York Times, Donald Rumsfeld was considered the most powerful Secretary of Defense since Robert McNamara during the Vietnam War. He attended Princeton University on academic and Navy scholarships, and later served in active duty as a Navy pilot from 1954 through 1957. He transferred to a reservist position and continued his Navy service until 1975. Rumsfeld's political career began as a member of the House of Representatives from 1962 to 1969. He resigned to serve as Director of the Office of Economic Opportunity, then as Director of the Economic Stabilization Program, and then as U.S. Ambassador to NATO in Brussels, all under President Richard Nixon. After President Nixon's resignation, he was asked to come back to Washington to serve as Chairman of the Transition for new President Gerald Ford. He was ultimately hired as Ford's Chief of Staff. His deputy in that capacity was Dick Cheney, the future Vice President. After the Ford presidency, Rumsfeld worked in the private sector from 1977 through 2001 though he remained involved in public service as a presidential envoy or as a member of presidential or congressional commissions until his return to the Pentagon in 2001. One event worth noting during this period was that while serving as President Ronald Reagan's special envoy to the Middle East, he met in person with Iraqi dictator Saddam Hussein in Baghdad on December 20, 1983. According to the National Security Archive at George Washington University, quote, the two discussed regional issues of mutual interest, shared enmity toward Iran and Syria, and the U.S.'s efforts to find alternative routes to transport Iraq's oil. Its facilities in the Persian Gulf had been shut down by Iran, and Iran's ally Syria had cut off a pipeline that transported Iraqi oil through its territory. Rumsfeld made no reference to chemical weapons, according to detailed notes on the meeting. Neither man could have imagined how their paths would cross again some two decades later. Donald Rumsfeld was actually inside his office at the Pentagon on 9-11 when American 77 crashed into the building. There is video of him helping to evacuate survivors of the attack onto ambulances. Before 9-11, Rumsfeld had plans of modernizing the Department of Defense, developing a missile defense shield, and remaking the military with a smaller footprint that could act on short notice anywhere in the world. 9-11 made transforming the military to meet the new threat of terrorism even more of a priority. Here's journalist and author Mark Bowden, who has written extensively about the American military. So 9-11 uh, happens and, and it basically forces a, a, a radical transformation of government on very short notice. Um, talking about the, the military, the CIA, the FBI um, as the three main sort of American points of the government's points of, 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 of reference to, to fight or deter uh, terrorism. Um, Rumsfeld, you know, he was, he was there for five years as a SECDEF. He often spoke of, of transforming the military. Do you think he was able to do that before he left? I think it was the transformation was already underway. Um, when Rumsfeld was defense secretary, I think it's been an ongoing process, but clearly, um, you know, the, the Pentagon gets extremely focused and creative when we go to war. And as you think, it, as you know, you would think it would. And I think the challenges posed by Al Qaeda 
after 9-11 really uh, forced the Pentagon into adopting methods and tactics that it hadn't really used on a large scale before. And, you know, and that involved basically finding people. I mean, the, the military, our old military was basically built to, to handle conflict between states and, you know, grew out of World War II and, 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 and it, you know, Vietnam was obviously very problematic for it because it wasn't a straight out uh, conflict between states for, for a large measure. But, you know, Al-Qaeda posed a new kind of threat where they weren't a nation state. The challenge became finding a relatively small number of dangerous people who were planning acts of terror and eliminating them. And so that, I think, you know, I think when you look back on it, which I did in the finish, it is fairly remarkable how rapidly the military was able to adopt uh, computer technology, sophisticated searching software, um, and to and to deploy relatively relatively small, well trained units, which are special ops units, assisted by drones. Um, you know that became the tool that ultimately took down uh, Al-Qaeda as it was and remains, I think, the primary uh, method of, of war fighting here in the 21st century. Here's Paul Pope, a former Army and CIA officer who currently teaches at the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas. September 11th happens, and it forces the federal government to change and change very quickly. Uh, sometimes radically. Um, let's talk about the the Pentagon. Um, as I recall from that time, you know, Donald Rumsfeld, I think even before 9-11, was talking about transforming the military. Um, and by the time he leaves in 2006, I mean, you are, you know, five years into the war on terrorism. Uh, did he succeed? I don't think so. Um I think that the the I think 9-11 transformed the military and in some ways it moved it in, in some directions that he might have wanted to go. But I actually think he was a uh, a big negative. I have a very negative view of Mr. Rumsfeld. You can quote me on that one if you want. Um, for example, he um, a lot of special operators and CIA officers knew that we needed to cooperate more and work closer together. And Rumsfeld, rather than sort of fostering that, was constantly comparing and chastising the military for not being more like CIA, which actually uh, kind of created some negative, uh, uh, some problems. Uh, so I don't, I don't give him a lot of credit. I do, I, if, if the question is, did they transform? The answer is yes, a lot of transformation happened. But I'm not, I'm not I think a lot of it was transformed by, um, by virtue of, of the conditions and I, let me, if I can follow up and I'll give you a little bit more examples, specific examples. So, you know, the, Rumsfeld was not happy when chief of station Islamabad's plan or recommendations for things to consider in Afghanistan was adopted by president Bush as kind of the plan that we were going to use. He was very unhappy about that. That ended up being a very special forces, you know, combat air power and CIA intensive plan. That's not the plan he would have come up with. And it's not the plan he was happy with, nor was Tommy Franks, the commander of SITCOM, happy with it. 
So I think he was actually fighting the direction that we went, not leading towards it. I guess in any time you're doing a, a major change or transformation or reinvention, uh, not, not only of a person, but of an institution, and institutions are more resistant to change or transformation than people are, I would think. But anytime you do that, there, I'm guessing there's a certain amount of, of trial and error at the beginning, right? And you're just sort of constantly reassessing, reevaluating, tweaking, and then going back at it again. And then, you know, you know, sort of the cycle to, to, to reassess, reimprove, and, and, and evolve. Um, would that be a fair statement? Yeah. In fact, what, what happened then was not really a top-down transformation. It wasn't like the senior people said, here's the way we need to transform the military. What happened was we got a really hard mission to execute really quickly. And then what you're describing, uh, you know, trial and error, let's see if this works. Uh, let's try this thing. And so it was sort of like an opening up of the aperture for innovation. And, and it was all driven by necessity. Um, so yeah, very rapid change happened, but it was really um, greatly bottom led, I think, um, and, and mission driven, just figuring out a way to do it, essentially. I'm talking about the special forces and CIA level, not the you know, big army or something. Right. And I mean, historically, the military has uh, was designed, has been used for, you know, big state versus state conflicts. Right. Um, the last big one, major one being, I would guess, Desert Storm. What is the birth of the modern what we consider to be the modern military before 9-11? And how much of a departure is the current model from from what it used to be? Well, when we talk about the current model and the transformation, I would say that the transformation after 9-11 was very much to be able to execute the, what we needed to execute for the war on terror, as we called it then. Um, and, and I never, as a former soldier, I never thought that that was replacing everything, you know, with regard to like state versus state requirements that the Army, Navy, Air Force actually have, you know. So um, it wasn't like all of that was being thrown out with the, you know, baby with the bathwater, baby with the bathwater. But um, the, the last big transformation for the Army um, was right after Vietnam in the late 70s, early 80s. You know, the U.S. woke up and the U.S. Army looked, they, but three things had happened. The first thing that happened was the, we lost in Vietnam and that kind of created a, a sense of, uh, humility that opened the door a little bit to reform. Second thing was the Arab-Israeli war happened and the Israelis lost, like, I think the statistic was as many tanks as we had in Europe or something, you know? So we realized that, you know, the, the lethality of warfare and we looked at what was happening with the Soviet Union and, and basically got really serious about, about reform and about innovation and, and changing the way we thought about it. And that was sort of a top-led, doctrinal-led reform process that I was a part of. It was also when we moved to the volunteer army. Uh, it almost failed, in my opinion. And then it succeeded. And that's, that resulted in Desert Storm and, and that one-sided victory. Um, this transformation was very different. This was um, essentially, like I said, um, born of necessity where you had special forces units being placed with, you know, Northern Alliance units with CIA people helping them figuring out a way uh, to do it. 
And I, I don't know that that actually was a doctrinal transformation. It's just more of a transformation operationally on the fly. By the end of 2001, there would be an estimated 2,300 American military personnel in Afghanistan, according to ABC News. Also happening on October 7th, Osama bin Laden released a pre-recorded video address which aired on Al Jazeera, the Qatar-based Arab news channel. The central theme of bin Laden's speech was whataboutism, praising the 9-11 attacks while invoking the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the children of Iraq hit by U.S.-led sanctions, and Palestine. Keep in mind, he does not publicly accept responsibility for the attacks at this point. After a relentless five-week military campaign by the United States and the Northern Alliance, the Taliban suffered a staggering series of losses by the second week of November of 2001. The capital city of Kabul fell on November 13th, 64 days after 9-11 and 38 days after the formal U.S. declaration of war on October 7th. November 15th, 2001. Mohammed Atef was bedridden in an Al-Qaeda safe house in Kandahar. According to journalists Kathy Scott Clark and Adrian Levy, he was, quote, crippled by back pain, the result of a herniated disc. He came down from the mountains on September 12th to seek medical treatment in Kandahar while trying to continue his routine of running Al-Qaeda. At dawn, two Hellfire missiles hit the building. Mohammed Atef, who in addition to being Al-Qaeda's military commander, was also a founding member of the organization, a close friend of Osama bin Laden's, and father-in-law to one of bin Laden's sons, was dead. He was the first senior Al-Qaeda leader killed by American forces. Atef's death presumably hit bin Laden personally. Atef was his closest friend and most trusted confidant. They had fought together in the trenches of Afghanistan in the 80s, and Atef was a founding member of Al-Qaeda, to say nothing of their ties to the marriage of their children. He was also one of the few people in Al-Qaeda besides bin Laden himself who was privy to the details of the 9-11 plot before it was carried out. Seventeen people were killed in the attack on the safe house, including Atef. There was Zakaria Al-Tunisi, who allegedly fired the rocket-propelled grenade that brought down a U.S. Black Hawk helicopter in Mogadishu back in 1993, which was covered back in Episode 2. Also in the building was Moaz bin Atash, a nephew of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. He was the youngest member of the bin Atash family who, at the time, were assigned to take care of Al-Qaeda's main guest house in Kandahar. Among the evidence recovered from the rubble of Atef's safe house were martyr videos and video of a casing operation, which FBI agent Ali Sufan thought was filmed in Singapore. December 14, 2001 A little more than a month after the killing of Mohammed Atef, the Internal Security Department, which is Singapore's domestic intelligence service, broke up a plot by the East Asian terrorist organization Jemaah Islamiyah. Their objective was to attack the U.S., British, Australian, and Israeli embassies in Singapore. The U.S. would share the casing video recovered from Atef Safehouse with their Singapore counterparts. On December 15th, the ISD arrested a Singaporean member of Jamaa Islamiyah. Among the evidence recovered from the search of his home was the master copy of the casing video. Ali Sufan would later note, quote, 
the tape provided concrete proof of the connection between J.I. and Al-Qaeda. Sufan also recognized three people in the martyr videos, 9-11 accomplice Ramzi bin al-Sheep and two of bin Laden's former bodyguards. Sufan noted that none of them were known to have killed themselves in an operation, meaning that they might be planning something for the future. November 18, 2001. Somewhere in Logar province, Eamon al-Sawahiri's wife had been on the run with their five children for days. While making their way to coast, the family stopped and took refuge in a house at Gardez. The eldest daughter, Fatima, heard the sound of aircraft just before bombs hit nearby, causing the residents to collapse. Fatima survived, but Eamon al-Sawahiri's wife and two of their children were killed in the attack. This new war on terror, which was initially being fought on both sides of the Afghanistan-Pakistan border, the United States was stuck in a marriage of convenience with Pakistan, just as they had been against the Soviets two decades earlier. In exchange for Pakistan's cooperation, the United States resumed sales of military hardware to the country, gave billions of dollars in aid, and designated it as a major non-NATO ally. To put it diplomatically, Pakistan was not the most reliable partner. Imagine an arsonist who starts fires while simultaneously pretending to be the firefighter coming to save the day. There have long been ties between extremist groups and the Inter-Services Intelligence, Pakistan's military intelligence agency. In the Pakistani political system, the military is a powerful constituency that can make or break a president. While the Pakistani government might say all the right things about cooperating on security and counterterrorism issues with the United States, there were elements in the ISI that were friendly with, if not outright supportive of, Al-Qaeda or the Taliban or Islamist elements in Afghanistan and Pakistan. Here's former CIA analyst Paul Pillar. The Pakistani regimes have seen some of these groups as tools for manipulating what is to them the all-important situation next door in Afghanistan. Um, the events in Afghanistan and who has power there and what's going on there are extremely important to the regime in Islamabad because they share a long border, the Duran line, because uh, Afghanistans and Afghans uh, haven't ceased to lay claim to portions of Pakistan in the Northwest that are inhabited by Pashtuns, the dominant ethnic group uh, across the border in Afghanistan. Why the close ties to militants? Historically, this murky relationship with Islamic radicals has been part of the state's national security strategy, particularly in relation to India and the contested territory in Kashmir. In the background of all this, of course, is the, is the rivalry and conflict with India, uh, in which Pakistan uh, always sees everything in zero-sum terms. Uh, the Pakistanis get apoplectic uh, every time the Indians have done anything else in Afghanistan, just opening up a consulate, for example. And so they are able to take uh, or willing to take considerable risk with regard to the kind of people they're dealing with, uh, you know, really nasty, radical types, uh, in order to maintain this tool uh, of uh, keeping some degree of control over what's going on in Afghanistan. One possible example of this relationship was the 2008 attacks in Mumbai, 
carried out by Lashkar-e-Taiba, a Pakistani Islamist militant group. Over the course of three days, ten men armed with guns and explosives stormed buildings throughout the city, killing 166 people. They received instructions during the attacks from handlers in Pakistan on radios and cell phones. Indian authorities have accused the Pakistani government of having some involvement in the attacks, a charge Pakistan has denied. However, a Pakistani-American named David Coleman Headley, who scouted targets for the attacks, was a spy for the ISI. During his criminal trial in 2011, Coleman testified under oath about Lashkar-e-Taiba's ties to Pakistani intelligence. In his words, they, quote, coordinated with each other, and ISI provided assistance to Lashkar, financial, military, and moral support. Coleman was given a 35-year sentence in federal prison. Those of you curious to learn more about the Mumbai attacks should watch the movie Hotel Mumbai and the HBO documentary Terror in Mumbai. According to Pakistani scholar Hussein Shaheed Sohrawardi, quote, For the Pakistani military, the real problem about the war in Afghanistan and the ongoing insurgency in Khyber Pakhtunkhwa is not the Afghan Taliban or Al-Qaeda or the Pakistani Taliban militants fighting against them. For them, the real problem is India, which is manipulating the crisis in Pakistan while staying in Afghanistan. The close alliance between the U.S. and India has deeply shaken Pakistan's confidence in their own alliance with the U.S. Look at a map of the region. The Pakistani fear is that their country becomes surrounded by India to its east and an Indian proxy state to its west. When it comes to Pakistan's national security policy, everything is seen through the prism of its arch enemy, India. November 25, 2001. Johnny Mike Spann was a 32-year-old CIA officer. The 10-year Marine veteran had only been with the agency for two years when 9-11 happened. He was part of the CIA team that took the city of Mazar-e-Sharif in northern Afghanistan, roughly 35 miles south of the Afghanistan-Uzbekistan border. This was his first field assignment. They were going to interrogate suspected Al-Qaeda and Taliban prisoners at the Kala-e-Janki Fortress, located about 10 miles west of Mazir-e-Sharif. The fortress was described in CIA officer and jawbreaker team member Gary Bernstein's memoir as, quote, something out of the Middle Ages, a massive fortress made of mud, surrounded by two sets of thick walls topped with ramparts and turrets. Don't confuse him with jawbreaker team leader Gary Schroen, by the way. They are two different people. According to Bernstein, an estimated 500 Al-Qaeda and Taliban prisoners had been brought into the fortress the night before, after the fall of Kunduz, quote, 50 at a time on flatbed trucks. Security conditions at the prison were not ideal. Bernstein writes, quote, very few of the prisoners had been searched prior to their arrival. Some concealed weapons and explosives under their clothes. A few managed to strap their weapons under the carriages of the trucks. Upon entering the fortress, the tired, hungry POWs couldn't help but notice that they outnumbered their Uzbek guards five to one. Bernson continues, quote, When the Northern Alliance commander of Kala-e-Jangi, Nadir Ali, ordered prisoners to turn out their pockets, one of them pulled the pin on a grenade he was hiding. 
killing the commander and himself. Later that night, another prisoner blew himself up along with Hazara commander Saeed Assad. As a result, the POWs were herded into cells in the basement accessed from the south of the fortress, where, with no food and little water, they spent a cold, dark night. According to Bernson, Span was there to identify foreign fighters who might have knowledge of potential future Al-Qaeda plots to attack the West. He and another CIA officer asked each prisoner one at a time, Why are you here? Why have you joined the Taliban? The response, regardless of nationality, was, quote, to kill you. Span came across a young man with long hair, wearing a British military sweater. He was clearly of Western origin. This was 21-year-old John Walker Lind. Span talked to him in English to try to get him to respond. He did not. As Gary Bernson wrote, quote, All the young American had to say were three words, I'm an American, and he would have been whisked from the fortress, cared for, questioned, and fed. But he chose not to. Span was overheard saying about Walker Lind, quote, The problem is he needs to decide if he wants to live or die, and die here. We're just going to leave him, and he's going to fucking sit in prison the rest of his fucking short life. It's his decision, man. We can only help the guys who want to talk to us. Before continuing with the story, let's backpedal and learn about how John Walker Lind wound up in an Afghan prison. John Philip Walker Lind was born on February 9th, 1981. He was the second of three children. He spent his early years in Tacoma Park, Maryland, a suburb of Washington, D.C., while his father worked as a government lawyer. When Walker Lind was 10, his father accepted a position as a lawyer for Pacific Gas and Electric and moved the family to Marin County, just north of San Francisco. He later told FBI investigators that he became interested in the Islamic religion at the age of 12 after watching Spike Lee's biographical film Malcolm X. He converted to Islam in early 1997 at age 16. He regularly attended a mosque in Mill Valley, California and went by the names Suleiman al-Lind or Suleiman al-Faris. He left California in July of 1998. First, he went to Yemen to study Islam and the Arabic language. He went on to Pakistan in October of 2000. While there, according to CNN, he enrolled in an Islamic fundamentalist school known as a madrasa and took an interest in the Kashmir region. According to Walker Lind's federal grand jury indictment, he spent several weeks during the early summer of 2001 in Pakistan at a training camp for Harakat ul Mujahideen. The U.S. government describes it as, quote, a terrorist group dedicated to an extremist view of Islam that was based in Pakistan and which operated primarily in Kashmir. It also alleges the group carried out terrorist operations against Indian troops and civilian targets in Kashmir. It had been designated a foreign terrorist organization by the U.S. State Department since October of 1997. According to CNN, the group was behind failed assassination attempts on Pakistani President Pervez Musharraf. Walker Lind became disillusioned with the cause, CNN reported, and after receiving 24 days of military training, he asked to join the Taliban. The indictment alleges that at some point in May or June of 2001, 
Walker Lynn told Harakat al-Mujahideen officials of his desire to fight with the Taliban in Afghanistan. Walker Lynn made the trek into Afghanistan a few weeks later and reported to a Taliban recruiting center in Kabul. According to his indictment, he presented a letter of recommendation from Harakat al-Mujahideen and told them he was an American and wanted to fight on the front lines. According to CNN, because he did not speak any of the local languages of Afghanistan, Walker Lynn joined the Arab group, which was essentially Al-Qaeda. By late May or early June of 2001, Walker Lind agreed to undergo extensive military training at an Al-Qaeda training camp in Afghanistan. At some point in June, he arrived at the Al-Farouk training camp, located several hours to the west of Kandahar. There were 20 or so other recruits at the camp with him, mostly from Saudi Arabia. By his own admission, Walker Lind spent an estimated seven weeks at the Al-Farouk camp. According to his indictment, Walker Lind received training in weapons, orienteering, navigation, explosives, and battlefield combat. The latter included training in the use of shoulder weapons, pistols, rocket-propelled grenades, and the production of Molotov cocktails. This is a direct quote from Walker Lind's indictment. In or about June and July 2001, Lind remained at the Al-Faru camp and participated fully in its training activities after having been told early in his stay at the camp that bin Laden had sent forth some 50 people to carry out 20 suicide terrorist operations against the United States and Israel. At around that same time, Walker Lind personally met Osama bin Laden, who thanked him and other camp trainees for participating in jihad. A senior al-Qaeda official asked Walker Lind if he was interested in traveling outside of Afghanistan to participate in operations against Israel and the United States. Walker Lind declined, saying he preferred to fight on the front lines. Sometime in June or July 2001, Walker Lind swore allegiance to Jihad. He completed his military training by August, after which he was given an AKM rifle and traveled with a group of 150 non-Afghan fighters from Kabul to the front lines in Takar in northeastern Afghanistan. Walker Lind's indictment alleges, quote, After learning about the terrorist attacks against the United States on or about September 11, 2001, Lind remained with his fighting group. Lind did so despite having been told that bin Laden had ordered the attacks, that additional terrorist attacks were planned, and that additional Al-Qaeda personnel were being sent from the training camps to the front lines to protect bin Laden, and defend against an anticipated military response from the United States. Walker Lind remained with his group of fighters, which retreated from Takar to Kunduz. His group surrendered to Northern Alliance soldiers. On November 24th, Walker Lind and other captured fighters were brought to Mazir Sharif by truck. Once there, they were taken to the Kala Ijangi prison compound. 24 hours later, Walker Lind was being interrogated by Johnny Spann and another CIA officer. The indictment alleges that from November 25th through December 1st, 2001, Walker Lind stayed in the basement area of the prison with other Al-Qaeda and Taliban fighters until they were recaptured. Walker Lind's family had no idea where he was. They hadn't seen or heard from him in seven months. His father, Frank Lind, later said he didn't know his son was in Afghanistan until he saw him on CNN. Back at the fortress, 
Gary Bernson noted in his memoir that by the night of the 26th, the shooting from Al-Qaeda and Taliban fighters finally let up. By midnight, an AC-130 gunship was circling the fortress. Its firepower was focused on several southern perimeter buildings held by rebels. Bernson writes, quote, Powerful 30mm guns and cannons shredded the walls of the armory, setting off a massive explosion that lifted the entire fortress in air. The blast blew open doors 10 miles away. Secondary explosions lit up the night sky for miles around and continued for hours. A foreign fighter who escaped was captured by local residents and hung from a tree. Downstairs in the southern basement, hundreds of foreign fighters, including John Walker Lind, huddled against the walls with their hands over their ears as the ceiling rumbled and quaked overhead. According to Gary Bernson's memoir, Johnny Spann's body was discovered by special forces soldiers with a Taliban body on top of his, rigged with a booby trap. He had been executed by two gunshots to the head. Normally, when a CIA officer dies in the line of duty, he or she typically remains anonymous in death as they were in life. Operations, sources, and methods still had to be protected, even if the officer was no longer alive. In this case, CAA Director George Tenet did exactly the opposite of what CAA tradition and protocol called for. He released information about Span to the public. According to Bob Woodward's book, Bush at War, the 79th star on the CAA's memorial wall at Langley headquarters would be Span's. He was later buried at Arlington National Cemetery, a decision that had to be approved by the president because the initial request was turned down. Johnny Spann was the first American to die in Afghanistan and in the broader war on terrorism. He would not be the last. John Walker Lynn was later interviewed by journalist Robert Young Pelton on December 2nd. He called the prison uprising, quote, all a mistake of a handful of people. Quote, this is against what we had agreed upon, and this is against Islam. It is a major sin to break a contract, especially in military situations. Referring to Jihad, Walker Lind said, quote, It's exactly what I thought it would be. When asked if it was the right cause, he answered, quote, Definitely. The interview would later air on CNN. Here's David Kelly, who was one of the federal prosecutors assigned to the John Walker Lind case after his return to the United States. And what was your impression of him as a ta- at the time when you had to prosecute him? I mean, it was just, how does this kid from California get to an Al-Qaeda camp in Afghanistan? Righteous, sophomoric kid um, who thought he knew a lot more than I think he did. Um, And, you know, look, I'll tell you real briefly, uh, but, you know, this this is somebody who found himself looking to engage in jihad, found himself on the front lines with the Taliban, was in the mix at a prison uprising in in Afghanistan at Masr al-Sharif. He was confronted by two CIA officers, no question that they were Americans. He never identified himself as an American and acted as though he couldn't speak English. He subsequently was injured, taken to a hospital en route to the hospital. He was in a truck um, with several other prisoners. It stopped at the home of a warlord um, and the truck was boarded by some U.S. Army officers who kind of scanned the group 
And again, instead of reaching out, raising his hand and say, hey, I'm an American, help me. He chose not to do that. Uh, and then he went to, was taken to a hospital. And that's when the uh, Army uh, Special Forces came to learn that there was an American kid there. So they went there and, and the medic who was there said to his commanding officer, if we don't get this kid out of here, he dies. Um, he already has an infection in his leg and the way they're treating him, he won't make it. So they took him out and they treated him and they saved his life. And um, the irony of it, the sad irony of it is that the medic who saved his life was about a year and a half later killed in Iraq. Uh, but they saved his life. And um, like I say, I think he was just a lost kid. Um, and, um, and I don't know what more to say about it, but he's served his time and now he's out. We'll see what he does with his life. Oh. My guess is that he hasn't, my guess is that he hasn't done any regrets, but I haven't had any contact with him since, you know, that time. In February of 2002, a federal grand jury charged John Walker Lind with 10 counts of terrorism-related offenses. He pleaded guilty to count nine, supplying services to the Taliban. Prosecutors dropped the other nine charges as part of a plea agreement. He was sentenced to 20 years in prison. By December of 2001, Osama bin Laden had fallen back to Tora Bora, a cave complex located in the eastern half of the country, an estimated 30 miles southeast of Jalalabad. A Senate Foreign Relations Committee report published in 2009 described it as, quote, a fortress-like section of the White Mountains that stretches about six miles long and six miles wide across a collection of narrow valleys, snow-covered ridgelines, and jagged peaks reaching 14,000 feet. Why here? Bin Laden told journalist Abdel Bari Atwan several years earlier that Tora Bora had a special significance to him because it had been his main military base during the anti-Soviet Jihad in the 80s. It also had a geographically strategic location, about 10 miles or so from the Pakistani border. Recall what he told his son Omar when they lived on the mountain. Quote, We never know when war will strike. We must know our way out of these mountains. We must memorize every rock. Nothing is more important than knowing secret escape routes. Between December 6th and 18th, 2001, Tora Bora was the site of a ferocious bombing campaign in an effort to kill Al-Qaeda fighters and force Bin Laden out and capture him. Although the campaign resulted in the killing or capture of multiple Al-Qaeda fighters, Bin Laden himself was somehow able to escape across the border and into Pakistan. Bin Laden's escape became politicized in the years following 9-11. This was especially the case during the 2004 presidential election, where Democratic presidential nominee John Kerry accused the Bush administration of letting Bin Laden get away. Here's Kerry during the first presidential debate with George W. Bush in September of 2004. I would not take my eye off of the goal, Osama Bin Laden. Unfortunately, he escaped in the mountains of Tora Bora. We had him surrounded, but we didn't use American forces, the best trained in the world, to go kill him. The president relied on Afghan warlords, and he outsourced that job, too. That's wrong. Tommy Franks, who was the general in charge of the military response in Afghanistan immediately after 9-11, denied the accusations in an op-ed published in the New York Times. He wrote, quote, 
We don't know to this day whether Mr. Bin Laden was at Tora Bora in December 2001. Some intelligence sources said he was. Others indicated he was in Pakistan at the time. Still others suggested he was in Kashmir. Tora Bora was teeming with Taliban and Al-Qaeda operatives, many of whom were killed or captured, but Mr. Bin Laden was never within our grasp. Keep in mind, the Franks op-ed was published on October 19, 2004, the home stretch of a heated presidential election. By that point, he had retired from the military and publicly endorsed his former boss, President George W. Bush. In other words, he had a vested personal and political interest in raising doubt over whether bin Laden was there at Tora Bora or not. We'll have more details about the 2004 presidential election in the next episode. Evidence has emerged that bin Laden was at Tora Bora in the year since the battle. In 2005, the Associated Press obtained a legal filing stating that an unidentified terror suspect in U.S. custody at Guantanamo Bay, quote, assisted in the escape of Osama bin Laden from Tora Bora. A graphic included in the official history of U.S. Special Operations Command marked several positions in Tora Bora where bin Laden was reportedly present during the 12-day battle. The same report, which was published in 2007, notes, quote, what has since been determined with reasonable certainty was that UBL was indeed in the vicinity of Tora Bora in December 2001. All source reporting corroborated his presence on several days from 9 to 14 December. The fact that SOF came as close to capturing or killing UBL as U.S. forces have to date makes Tora Bora a controversial fight. Given the commitment of fewer than 100 American personnel, U.S. forces proved unable to block egress routes from Tora Bora south into Pakistan, the route that UBL most likely took. U.S. military and intelligence operatives on the ground heard bin Laden's voice on a radio picked up from a dead Al-Qaeda fighter, and other fighters were heard making reference to his presence in the area. The senior U.S. military officer at Tora Bora, a retired major in Delta Force who uses the pseudonym Dalton Fury, wrote in his 2008 book, Kill Bin Laden, quote, There is no doubt that Bin Laden was in Tora Bora during the fighting, from alleged sightings to the radio intercepts to news reports from various countries. It was repeatedly confirmed that he was there. To further confuse the U.S. military and intelligence communities, Bin Laden's chief bodyguard and a group of 30 operatives split off on their own. The bodyguard took his boss's satellite phone with him, Every once in a while, he would turn the phone on to draw the attention of the American intelligence teams away from Osama bin Laden himself. Bin Laden's satellite phone was previously covered back in episode 5. This would be the last time American military personnel would have a shot at capturing or killing bin Laden for nearly a decade. December 22, 2001 Richard Colvin Reed, a British national, boards American Airlines Flight 63, going from Paris to Miami. There are 197 passengers and crew on board, traveling during the peak Christmas holiday season, just three months after 9-11. Packed inside of Reed's shoes were approximately 10 ounces of explosive material. During the flight, Reed tried to detonate his shoes, but was having difficulties lighting the fuse. Crew members and other passengers noticed what he was up to and physically restrained him. The flight was diverted to Logan International Airport in Boston, 
where Reed was taken into custody. He later told FBI agents he made the explosive shoes himself. During the subsequent preliminary hearing, an FBI agent testified that bomb technicians determined that if the bomb had detonated, it would have blown a hole in the plane's fuselage, causing it to crash. According to the Counter-Extremism Project, Reed was born in a London suburb on August 12, 1973, and fell into a life of crime during his early 20s. He was jailed in several prisons, and is believed to have converted to Islam at one of them. After his release, he became a member of the Brixton Mosque in South London, where the extremist preacher Abdullah Faisal delivered sermons. It was at the Brixton Mosque where Reed is alleged to have met Zacharias Moussaoui, who was later charged with conspiracy in connection with the 9-11 plot. Reed left that mosque for the Finsbury Park Mosque in North London, where he attended sermons led by radical cleric Abu Hamza. At some point between 1998 and 1999, Reed received training from Al-Qaeda at the Khaldun training camp in Afghanistan. He trained there at the same time as Ahmed Ressam, the Millennium Bomber caught trying to enter the United States at the Canadian border. Ressam's plot and arrest were previously covered back in Episode 5. According to intelligence documents obtained by CNN, Reed was an Al-Qaeda operative who reported to Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Reed would later plead guilty to all eight terrorism-related charges including one count of attempted use of a weapon of mass destruction. During the court hearing, Reed said, quote, I am at war with your country. He was also quoted as saying, At the end of the day, I know I did the actions. Basically, I got on a plane with a bomb. Basically, I tried to ignite it. He is serving a life sentence at the Supermax prison in Colorado. Two decades later, passengers are still taking their shoes off and subject to screening at airport because of Richard Reed's failed attack. By early 2002, the U.S. military had control of Afghanistan, but as mentioned earlier in this episode, neither they nor the CIA had ever been in the incarceration business. They had picked up dozens, if not hundreds, of prisoners. Now they had to sort out if they were Taliban, Al-Qaeda, or a hapless bystander who was in the wrong place at the wrong time. The military built prison facilities on hastily built bases in Afghanistan, many of which were built on the existing infrastructure left behind from the Soviet occupation during the 80s. But there was also something else, the American naval base on the southeast coast of Cuba. According to the base's own history, Guantanamo Bay's location and topography, quote, have made it a valued possession of maritime powers since the 15th century. It should also be noted that Christopher Columbus landed here on April 30, 1494, during his second expedition to the Americas, and that it was later contested between the English, French, and Spanish empires. In 1898, Guantanamo Bay was taken by American forces and their Cuban allies for use as a forward operating base in the Spanish-American War. Five years later, the United States leased 45 square miles of land and water from the Cuban government, quote, to be used for fleet sustainment by the growing U.S. Navy. A 1934 treaty updated the terms and annual payment for the lease on Guantanamo Bay. Worth noting is the requirement that termination of the lease requires the consent of both Cuban and U.S. governments, or U.S. abandonment of the property. 
the United States cut off diplomatic relations with the Fidel Castro regime in 1961. Three years later, Castro cut off water and supply avenues to the base. The base's history notes, quote, Since then, Naval Station Guantanamo Bay has been self-sufficient with its own power and water sources. The war on terror and the subsequent legal no-man's land that prisoners were kept in would make Guantanamo Bay a symbol of infamy around the world. The first step on the path to Guantanamo happened on November 13, 2001. While much of the world's attention was on the fall of Kabul, an equally seismic military order came from the office of the President of the United States that day. Titled Detention, Treatment, and Trial of Certain Non-Citizens in the War Against Terrorism, the document lays out the conditions of how the United States is going to treat prisoners in the newly started war on terrorism. The document also makes the prosecution of detainees the exclusive domain of military commissions, rather than the American judicial system. Moreover, an individual detainee could not contest his detention in a U.S. or foreign court, or before an international tribunal. January 11, 2002. The first 20 prisoners arrive at Guantanamo. They are dubbed, quote, the worst of the worst by the Pentagon. They are initially held inside wire mesh outdoor cages at Camp X-Ray. Within a week, the Bush administration declares that the Guantanamo prisoners are not prisoners of war, and thus are not entitled to protections under the Geneva Convention. A photograph taken by a U.S. sailor on the day the first prisoners arrived showed them wearing orange prison uniforms, handcuffed, heads covered, and kneeling on gravel. They would be the first of hundreds of prisoners to pass through Guantanamo Bay over the next two decades. March 28, 2002 A joint U.S.-Pakistani raid on safe houses in Faisalabad, Pakistan results in the capture of some 30 Al-Qaeda fighters, with one being killed in the operation. One of the prisoners captured alive was Abu Zubaydah, who the U.S. intelligence community considered a high-value target at the time. Zubaydah's full name was Zain Alabidim Muhammad Hussein Abu Zubaydah. At the time, he was a 31-year-old Palestinian born in Saudi Arabia. He went to India for college, married an Indian woman, but that marriage ended in divorce. In the early 90s, he got involved with Afghan militants in the years after the Soviet withdrawal from Afghanistan. According to a Department of Defense document, he decided that he would dedicate his life to jihad in 1993. At that time, of all the groups in Afghanistan, only Al-Qaeda was continuing the struggle. The report notes, quote, Detainees submitted the requisite paperwork to join Al-Qaeda and pledge Bayat to UBL. Detainees' application to Al-Qaeda was rejected. According to Zubaydah, the reason for his rejection was that in 1992 or 93, he had sustained a head wound from shrapnel while on the front lines in Afghanistan. As a result of his injury, he had to relearn basic skills like how to walk, how to talk, and how to write. The report notes, quote, he was therefore worthless to Al-Qaeda. FBI agent Ali Sufan noted that because it was judged too dangerous to remove the shrapnel, Zubaydah still has a hole in his head. Sufan also noted that because of his injury, Abu Zubaydah had to constantly be reminded of who he was as part of his therapy and recovery. It was for this reason that Zubaydah was one of the few Al-Qaeda terrorists to go by his real name. 
Zubaydah would ultimately decline to take the oath to Osama bin Laden, a prerequisite for Al-Qaeda membership, until Al-Qaeda agreed to stage an attack inside Israel or mount an operation to free the blind sheikh from federal prison in the United States. Neither of these ever happened, so it is probably safe to assume that Zubaydah never took the oath. Regardless of the oath issue, that didn't stop him from working for Al-Qaeda as a financier, facilitator, and logistics man who helped Al-Qaeda operatives obtain fake passports, travel visas, and plane tickets. Journalist Terry McDermott described him as Al-Qaeda's travel agent. In return for his services, Al-Qaeda gave Zubaydah protection in Afghanistan, where he would regularly stay at Al-Qaeda guest houses. Zubaydah had first come to the FBI's attention almost two years earlier in connection with Ahmed Ressam's attempt to bomb Los Angeles International Airport and the Millennium Plot in Jordan. These plots were previously covered back in Episode 5. Zubaydah was the first major Al-Qaeda figure that the United States and Pakistan had managed to capture alive. But there was a problem. He had been seriously injured by gunshot wounds and was slowly bleeding to death. During a shootout, he had been shot in the thigh, groin, and stomach while trying to escape from the roof of one apartment building to another. On top of this, he had altered his appearance. According to the Rendition Project, Zubaydah was first taken to a military hospital in Pakistan, where he was treated by U.S. and Pakistani doctors in the immediate aftermath of his capture. Within three days, he was taken to a CAA black site in Thailand, where he would remain until early December. Half a world away, FBI agent Ali Sufan was getting ready to leave for a family vacation when the office called. Abu Zubaydah had been captured the night before, and Sufan was to fly over there to interrogate him. A few hours later, Sufan was on a plane with Stephen Godin, another FBI agent, along with a CIA anesthesiologist on contract and a cadet who had been pulled out of a new CIA officer training class and was assigned to the mission because he had medical training. They would be providing medical support for the interrogation. This is how Sufan described Zubaydah's condition at the time they first met. Quote, He was barely moving. Parts of his body were bandaged up and elsewhere he had cuts and bruises. He was in critical condition. His wrists were handcuffed to the gurney. Sufan would later testify that he and his fellow FBI agent assigned to the interrogation were able to get actionable intelligence from Zubeda within the first hour. The CIA medical team supporting them said they were not equipped to treat Zubeda and that he needed to be taken to a hospital or he would die. The interrogation continued at the local hospital, while taking into account Zubaydah's medical condition and presumably the painkillers he was on. In his memoir, Sufan wrote, quote, As we interrogated Abu Zubaydah, we were simultaneously fighting to keep him alive. He was in terrible shape. The bullet that had hit him in his left thigh had shattered coins in his pocket. Some of this freak shrapnel entered his abdomen. We had to take breaks during the interrogation as the medics opened his wounds and cleaned them to prevent infection. He couldn't eat, drink, or even clean up after himself. As we interrogated him, I placed blocks of ice on his lips to give him some liquid, and Stephen cleaned him up after he soiled himself. Remember, Abu Zubaydah is the first high-level Al-Qaeda operative to be captured alive. The CIA wants him kept alive at all costs. 
A cable sent from Langley to Sufan's team in the field read, quote, Death is not an option. After doctors successfully operated on him in a Thai hospital and Zubeda was recovering and lucid, the questions continued. The agents showed him a photo of a terrorist on the FBI's newly created Most Wanted Terrorist list, a man they wanted him to identify visually. They thought they were showing him a photo of Azayet, an alias for Abdullah Ahmed Abdullah, indicted for his role in the Africa Embassy bombings. But they showed him the wrong picture, and Zubeda unwittingly gave them an intelligence bombshell. No, this isn't Azayet, Zubeda responded. Sufan raised his voice, incredulous and somewhat angry, thinking that Zubeda was playing games with him. Sufan recounts the exchange in his memoir, quote, I'm showing you the picture of Azayet, and you say it isn't him, so indulge me, who the fuck is this? Quote, you know who it is, Zubeda responds, quote, it's Mukhtar. Sufan recognized the name, but maintained his poker face. Sometime after the invasion of Afghanistan, the U.S. had found a video Bin Laden made after 9-11 describing the plot and bragging about his expertise in organizing it. At several points in the video, he points to a person off-camera, referring to him as Mukhtar, and giving him some credit for the attacks. There were other references to Mukhtar on the video, but they didn't know who he was, only that he must have been important if Bin Laden gave him some credit for the 9-11 plot. According to Ali Sufan, the word Mukhtar can mean mayor or the chosen. In his words, quote, either way, it is a name that denotes respect. He apologized to Zubeda for showing him the wrong photo, but, as long as they were talking, I asked him to tell him about Mukhtar. This is how Sufan recounts Zubeda's response, quote, you know who he is. Please don't play games with me, my brother. You know. You know Mukhtar is the guy who did the planes operation. This was a seismic revelation. They now had a name for Mukhtar, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the man whose picture he had shown Zubeda by mistake. More importantly, they now knew he was the organizer and overall leader of the 9-11 plot. Up to that point, the U.S. intelligence community didn't know that he was a member of Al-Qaeda. He was on the FBI's most wanted list for his role in the Bajinka plot, which was covered back in episode 3. Sufan kept the line of questioning going, asking Zubeda about KSM and 9-11. Zubeda told him everything. The United States now had proof of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed's involvement in the 9-11 plot. In his memoir, Sufan wrote, quote, A key to a successful interrogation is to never let the suspect know that he is giving you information you didn't know. April 2002, Al Jazeera journalist Yasri Fuda got a call on his London cell phone. A voice he doesn't recognize is on the other end, but he asks Fuda about his network's coverage plans for the one-year anniversary of 9-11, and teases him with the prospect of exclusive stuff. The voice later sent Fuda a fax with an outline for a 9-11 anniversary documentary with a pro-Al-Qaeda or pro-Bin Laden slant. In his book, Masterminds of Terror, Fuda notes that at this point, seven months after the 9-11 attacks, no one had formally accepted responsibility for them. Bin Laden, on the other hand, would continually praise the attacks, 
but without admitting culpability. Later that night, Fuda got another call on his cell phone, inviting him to come to Islamabad, Pakistan's capital city. He accepted the offer, began making arrangements, and within a week he was on a plane heading over there. Several hours after arriving and checking into his hotel, Fuda got a call. An anonymous voice told him to book a flight for the next night, bound for Karachi, Pakistan's main seaport in the southeast part of the country. Fuda would later write about the reason Al-Qaeda chose Karachi for their meeting with him. Quote, a city of 12 million people with no shortage of anti-American sentiment. It has a lot of safe neighborhoods inhabited not only by people who openly sympathize with Osama, they usually call him by his first name, but also by the diehards who have been to Kashmir, Afghanistan, Chechnya, the Philippines, and other Islamic flashpoints. Fuda only told the local Al Jazeera correspondent based in Islamabad where he was going. There were very real security concerns involved. Three months earlier, Wall Street Journal reporter Daniel Pearl had been kidnapped while he was out meeting with a source in Karachi. The Daniel Pearl case will be covered in more depth in the next episode. Fuda is given instructions to check into the Regent Plaza Hotel. Once in his room, he hears a knock on the door. An Al-Qaeda emissary, dressed in Pakistani garb, entered the room and gave Fuda his first real piece of news. Osama bin Laden was, quote, alive and well, and described him as an avid viewer of Al Jazeera. Quote, whatever he misses, he watches on tape. April 19, 2002. Fuda is given instructions to leave the hotel through the back exit and hail a taxi from the street to take him to a specific location. There would be several stops and car changes, presumably to elude any potential surveillance. At one stop, Fuda had balls of cotton taped over his eyelids, which were covered by a pair of sunglasses placed on him. He was effectively blindfolded. He was eventually led to an apartment inside a building. When his makeshift blindfold was removed, Fuda saw Khalid Sheikh Mohammed standing two feet away from him. In another room inside the apartment, sitting on the floor surrounded by three laptops and five mobile phones, was Ramzi bin Al-Sheib. Fuda knew exactly who both men were and what they were accused of. Did you do it? Fuda asked KSM. There would be no filming today, KSM responded. Al-Qaeda would provide him with everything he would need for an interview. Then KSM dropped a bombshell. As Fuda recalls in his book, quote, I am the head of the Al-Qaeda military committee, and Ramzi is the coordinator of the Holy Tuesday operation. And yes, we did it. It was the scoop of a lifetime, a confession of responsibility to the most devastating terrorist attack in history. Fuda spent the next two days in this Karachi apartment with KSM and Ramzi bin Al-Sheib. At one point during their 70-minute interview, bin Al-Sheib gets up and brings with him a small suitcase. It is filled with what he calls his Hamburg souvenirs. Scattered on the floor in front of Fuda were, quote, the bulk of the planning materials used by Mohammed Atta and the other hijack pilots as they planned their attacks. They included Boeing flight manuals, textbooks, flight simulator CD-ROMs, and a navigation map of the eastern United States seaboard. This treasure trove of evidence had been kept at the Hamburg apartment bin Al-Sheib shared with Mohammed Atta, Arwan Al-Shehi, and others. 
The 9-11 hijackers' time in Hamburg and the apartment they shared at 54 Marienstrasse was covered back in episode 6. Once the 9-11 plot was set and Bin al-Sheib had to leave Germany before the attacks, he took it all with him back to Pakistan. Bin al-Sheib and Fuda laid out the souvenirs on the floor. Fuda would later film them himself from every possible angle, for a total of more than 60 minutes worth of what people in the television news industry call B-roll. There was one catch to Fuda's big exclusive though. Al-Qaeda would keep the raw tapes of the interview and the B-roll and edit them, removing faces and other parts that they deemed not appropriate. Fuda would not get the edited approved tapes for at least several more weeks, meaning that until then, he had no proof that he had just landed this massive scoop. April 21st, 2002. Fuda leaves the Karachi apartment, blindfolded in a car driven by an Al-Qaeda associate. After 10 minutes of driving, the car stopped and the driver removed Fuda's blindfold, hailed a taxi and put Fuda in it on his way to the Karachi airport. Before he left, Fuda was given a statement in which Al-Qaeda claimed responsibility for a recent attack in Tunisia. April 11, 2002 A Tunisian Al-Qaeda operative named Nizar Nawar detonated a truck bomb outside the El Griba synagogue in Jerba, Tunisia, one of the oldest synagogues on the African continent. 19 people were killed, including 16 German and French tourists, and another 30 were injured. According to terrorism scholar Aaron Zellin, the synagogue attack was masterminded by Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and was Al-Qaeda's first successful external operation since the 9-11 attacks almost a year earlier. The statement given to Fuda hinted at a shift in focus on Al-Qaeda's part to the Israel-Palestine issue. Fuda flew to Dubai for a few days to rest and recover. He had everything from his trip in Pakistan except the interview tapes. At that point, he notes in his book, that he was one of the few people outside of Al-Qaeda's top leadership to know the story behind the 9-11 attacks. A week later, he went to Hamburg, Germany, loaded with leads and tips from his conversations with Ramzi bin al-Sheib, names and addresses. They asked where he was getting his information from. Food, unnaturally, did not reveal his source. That spring and summer, Fuda crisscrossed between Europe, the Middle East, and the United States, working on a documentary for the one-year anniversary of 9-11. That he had met with KSM and Ramzi bin al-Sheib was a closely guarded secret, even as they waited for delivery on the interview tapes. The videotapes were promised and delayed, repeatedly. At one point, while on a return trip to Karachi to receive the tapes, Fuda received a handwritten note demanding $1 million in cash for them, which was to be delivered in a locked briefcase to a designated person. Fuda refused to pay. He still had a two-part documentary, titled The Road to 11 September, that had to be filmed and edited in time for the one-year anniversary of the attacks. By late August, they were almost finished with part one, and about to show a preview screening to the chairman of Al Jazeera. Around this time, a mysterious envelope arrived in the mail with a distinct phrasing on the address, Floor 7, instead of 7th Floor, to indicate to Fuda that it was from Al-Qaeda. The envelope contained the CD-ROM, along with a typed message with responses or non-responses to follow-up questions Fuda had sent. The important thing was the CD, which contained the audio recording of his interview with Ramzi bin al-Sheib. 
He began rewriting the script for part two of his documentary to incorporate the audio of the Bin Al-Sheib interview. Al Jazeera had already started promoting The Road to 11 September, but made no mention or even a hint of their Bin Al-Sheib exclusive. Fouda finally let the cat out of the bag as a tease for part two during the final seconds of voiceover for part one. Quote, in the second part of this documentary, there will be the first direct confession as to how Al-Qaeda planned and executed the 11 September attacks. In coordination with Al Jazeera, the British newspaper The Sunday Times ran a three-page story by Fuda titled The Masterminds, as well as a front-page story by journalist Nick Fielding summarizing the highlights of what Fuda had learned during his interviews. The Sunday Times stories ran on September 8th, setting up the anticipation for The Road to 11 September Part 2, which would air on September 12th. Twenty years later, Fouda remains the only journalist to ever interview Ramzi bin Al-Sheib and Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. We'll have more on them in the next episode. That's it for this episode of Zero Hour. If you want to learn more, go to the website zerohourpod.com, where I've included a list of articles, documents, and links that I used in my research. The next episode will look at the Bush administration's decision to invade and occupy Iraq and the consequences of that decision. It will also look at how what was thought to be a promising lead turned into one of the darkest days in the history of the CIA. I'm David Asola. Thank you for listening.